Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and this is Recode Replay. Here's an interview from the stage of the 2017 Code Media Conference in Dana Point, California. You can find full coverage of all the speakers of the conference on recode.net. Talk to Peter a, a couple years now, I think, about potentially doing this, and he always framed it as sort of being in the, the Mary Meeker role, which um, I said was impossible because no one can be like Mary Meeker, and also I don't have nearly enough assistance to make all those beautiful slides. So, um, and also I, the sort of work that I do, um, I have my own site, it's called Stratechery. Um, I'm better at writing than I'm at naming things, apparently. But uh, it's, it's basically strategy and tech together. And I write a lot about the strategy of technology, and that by implication means I actually talk a lot about the media. And part of it is obviously sort of, you know, narcissistic. I'm technically a media company and a media person, so I like to write about my own industry. But at the same time, I think media is so fascinating in the context of technology because media has been impacted by technology first and faster than basically anything else. And a big reason is so many of the media, you know, sort of like start with text. Like text is the same thing that you use to make code, right, uh, per the name. It's the same thing that goes to newspapers. So it's very trivial to move that onto the internet. Music took a little longer, files were a little bigger, but still relatively easy again, the internet to listen to it using your computers and then your iPods and your phones and whatnot. And videos take a little longer. Again, it's a little larger. It's a little more difficult to get on, but now especially more and more broadband penetration, people have that. And so you see what's happening in these industries. And what's interesting though is the impact on these industries hasn't always been the same. What's happened to text-based, the text industry, is different than what's happened to the music industry, and it's different than what's happened to the TV industry. And the TV industry is obviously the one, the kind of the big fish in the pond. Everyone's curious to know what happens. Even as the internet has changed, and I borrowed some of uh, Mary's slides here because she does such a good job with them, it's always been that TVs, they had those down arrows, but TV's always up. It's always the big one. It has all the ad spend, it's all the time spent. It's kind of the big white well of technology. Snapchat just filed the rest one where we're gonna get some of that TV money, right? That's Facebook, Hornings Call is all about video. We want that TV money. It's, technology's been obsessed with it for ages and it's, been, it's stayed strong. And it's still a big part of how people spend their day. You can see all the parts, people have increased consumption on mobile, increased consumption, but that TV part has stayed relatively stable. And if you look at it in revenue terms, this is why I don't do charts, because mine are ugly and boring. <laughs> TV keeps going up, newspapers, you can't see it because of the scale, I'll give you a better chart in a little bit, it's going down. It's actually flat now because it was plummeting before. And music's been relatively flat. And the, where I differ from Mary is instead of taking the sort of data approach, I take a more theoretical approach. And like most people talking about theory in the context of business, I take great inspiration from Clay Christensen. And Clay Christensen is most famous with the theory of disruption, but actually one of the most compelling, don't read this, it's really complicated. <laughs> You're not gonna get much out of it. The, the, What's so, this, but this is actually one of his most compelling sort of theories that I found very useful in thinking about this sort of thing. Law of conservation of attractive profits. And, it's, um, and again, don't read it. There's a few important words. There's modular and interdependent architectures. That's basically uh, integrated versus modular. You heard that a lot in the context of like discussion about Apple versus Windows or Android, et cetera. Commoditization, decommoditization, modularity. Keep those words in mind. We're going to come back to them a little bit. But this is a much better phrasing of sort of the exact same concept. And it's from James Barksdale, Jim Barksdale, the former CEO of Netscape, which is there are only two ways to make money bundling and unbundling. And it sounds funny, 
But what I'm going to sort of try to convince you of today, it's not just that this is true, but it's that these happen simultaneously and interdependently. And it's that simultaneity and interdependence that actually makes this change happen. The way I really like to think about it is in the context of this, is a, a balloon animal. You know when you, if you make a balloon animal, I, I had a brief period where I was actually a clown and I know to make balloon animals. And you, you squeeze it, you actually squeeze apart and then the air pops to the other side, right? That's kind of like how value chains work. In, think about in the context of media, right? You, throughout before pre-internet, different media entities had a hold on distribution. That was the squeezing of the balloon. And then that let them bundle on one side things, and then on the other side they could capture, they could capture value from, from, from consumers. So newspapers is one of the easiest examples. They own printing presses, they own delivery trucks, they own all the sort of infrastructure in a city they had that hold on it, then they could bundle editorial and ads. And then the journalists could feel very proud of themselves because we separate editorial and advertising. The reality was that separation was actually an integration that was made possible by controlling distribution there, by squeezing that part of the tube. Same sort of thing with music. You had hold on, on distribution, just getting the actual CDs or tapes or cassettes, whether it be out there. You also had the relationship with radio stations. And what they actually bundled was really interesting. They bundled kind of new music and old music because people love listening to old music. And so it's really hard to start a new music label or business because you don't have the back catalog that provides the sort of almost venture sort of funding. It's like the LP in like a venture portfolio where they can put it into new acts and new artists. TV was the same sort of thing. They had the broadcast licenses where they had control over distribution. They could bundle programming and ads and they could make a tremendous amount of money. Now, obviously, this is all falling apart, but per my point before, it's falling apart in different sorts of ways. So this is the newspaper chart, I promise. You've probably seen this one. Uh, I just straight up borrowed it because it's, it's, <laughs> everyone's seen it, and it's so devastating. It, it, it's kind of hard to not keep staring at it. And the reason why it's kind of falling apart is go back to that bundling, okay? You had the editorial and advertising, and what was the hardest problem in the value chain? The hardest problem was getting that bundle to people's doors, getting it in their hands so they could look at it, they could see the editorial, they could see the advertising, they could make money. So you had all this, and, and it was geographically constrained because it's hard to move papers around. So you notice you have the bundle, the integration, and then getting to the customers. So what happened? What happened on the internet? On the internet, that bundle got exploded, broken into a million pieces, and actually broken down into individual articles, individual pages. The bundle was completely gone. And you had this overwhelming amount of data available or articles available on the internet, and Google com comes along, and it's a way to find it. Because the new hardest problem is not distribution. On the internet, distribution is free, particularly for text. There's no bandwidth cost for text. There is, but it's very, very small. And so Google, the hard problem is finding stuff. And so Google solved the new hardest problem. And what happened is Google could scale basically infinitely. They, and so they could basically bring together all of the consumers, aggregate them all together, and then, boop, pop some ads right in front of them. And it became the most compelling way to reach customers for advertisers, completely abandoning the traditional sort of, sort of area. And you had it sort of reshape, and this is, you see this pattern again and again, where you have the pre-internet era, where you had these sorts of bundles on one side, solving a hard problem. That's what gave them the powers, solving, solving the hard problem, let them bundle on one side, and then they could reach consumers, but once the various constraints went away, you had this massive abundance, 
and then the new player could come in, solve the problem, and aggregate all the customers together and make all the money. So you see this happening in hotels. This is sort of the thesis behind Airbnb. You went from having rooms and brand. What was the hard problem with hotels before? It was trust. You're going to go and put your head down and close your eyes and go to sleep, and you don't want to get like attacked or stolen from or whatever it might be. You're going to go stay in some random stranger's house? That's ridiculous. What Airbnb did with their sort of ranking algorithm and building that two-sided market is they, they basically digitized trust. They made trust into a commodity. And once that was gone, the other parts came to the surface, location, cost, having washer and dryer. And they broke down hotels. They, to Christensen's words, they modulized it and commoditized it into beds. And then they're, they're on, in the process of at least attempting to capture more and more and more customers, giving them power in the market. Same thing happening in transportation. You had a local, the local sort of monopolies, the cars, distribution medallions together. What was the hard thing? How did customers get the car? Well, they wave their hand, or maybe if they live in a city, they actually bother to write down the phone number and they can call it and get a car sent to them. What happens when Uber comes along, they break it down into cars, they become a dominant brand that everyone recognizes, their power is in the, the customer acquisition process, everyone knows who they are, they know what app to use to get a car now, it doesn't matter where they are, and they're on the roll to gaining more and more market power here. So the original though, the granddaddy is Google. Google is the one that really first did this and really nailed it. The difference with Google though is Google was a directed thing. You told Google what you wanted and it brought you, and that's why their ads are so valuable because you're very, very far down the funnel. You're telling Google what you want so they can give you exactly what you want to buy. The real monster though, you guys know where I'm going, is Facebook. And the reason why Facebook is so powerful is they switch those arrows around. Instead of you going and getting something, Facebook is just giving it to you, they're feeding it to you, and they're making all these decisions. And so to go back to our analogy of the balloon, it's actually totally flipped around. Where Google, where Facebook has this squeeze here, they have all this content that's churning. This content might be newspaper articles, it might be videos, it might be pictures of cats, it might be your, your nephew that was born yesterday, whatever it might be, that's all just a bunch of stuff floating around. It has to squeeze through Facebook's chokehold, and Facebook on the other side can basically bundle together consumers and advertisers and put them together in this feed and profit tremendously. Small wonder, newspapers are completely devastated. Now, music's actually turned out a little differently. Everyone remembers music being the first sort of really devastating industry, in the case of uh, Napster and, and iTunes and whatnot, but actually it's gotten, it's flattened out. It's been relatively stable, and it's actually projected to go up. And the reason is, is that the music industry had the same problem as the newspaper industry. They got broken up individual songs, and they didn't have the sort of bundle of the album or the whole catalog together. But what, they were what the music industry was able to do because of streaming is they were basically able to rebuild that bundle, to reintegrate all the old songs and all the new songs, and then offer it to you for one price, and now they've regained control of the value chain because that's, that's where the squeeze is. And so Apple Music and Spotify are there, and they're not making any money. And they won't make any money because there's, they don't, they're not providing anything of value because all the value is where the bundle is, where the integration is, and that is with the record labels. So they've actually, believe it or not, turned out <laughs> arguably the best of anyone, which is tell that to someone 10 years ago that would have been kind of blown their mind. So the big question, what about TV? TV, as I mentioned before, TV is the monster, right? TV has all the money, it has all the attention. What's going to happen there? And I've always been a big skeptic of the whole, 
you know, cord cutting and people are going to go a la carte and all this sort of stuff. It makes, it makes, doesn't make any sense because TV's bundle is way more powerful than anyone else's bundle, as I'm sure many of you in this room know very well, because it's not just programming and ads. It's, it's the whole cable bundle and all this sort of niche programming. And it, it's, it's a multi-layer, like, knot of bundles. The way I think about it, I think in the context of, of jobs. Why do we watch TV? And if for a long time you watch TV for information, whether it be news, whether it be uh, updates, education, like, whether it be, like, you, people, you laugh at education, but how many, how many parents bought justified getting cable TV back in the day because their kids could watch the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or whatever, even though they actually wanted to watch their shows? Uh, you had, and so that, that did just drive ads, but also subscriptions. That's why people would get a cable bundle. Sports is obviously a dominant one. I need to tell you about that. Storytelling, this is things like destination shows where you want to watch them. They're telling you a story. You're into it. You follow it every week. And there's escapism, just the boob tube. You just want to turn it on and watch whatever it might be. And sorry, I'm going to put some numbers on the screen. I don't like doing this either. But you had this idea where people could value different sorts of things. Joe's loves the news. He's all into the news, right? So the news channel could charge him $9.00. Or they could partner with everyone else, charge $3, and 3 times 4 is 12. They're actually making more money. Even though other people don't value news that much, they value other things. Sue's a sports nut. She loves sports. She'll pay a ton for sports. She'll only pay a little bit for other stuff, but she still likes it. Tom, Tom kind of likes all TV. <laughs> he, he, he's interested in it all. Jen loves that storytelling. She loves watching shows. She doesn't have any interest in sports. But you package all these people together, that's their kind of what they're willing to pay if you combine all the categories. And you can have a bundle that's cheaper than what they're all willing to pay. At the same time, every single channel in that bundle is making more than they could on their own. It's, it's one of the most powerful bundles from an economic terms that we've ever seen. The problem, though, is you take the stuff I just talked about and you get a new bundle that's coming in orthogonally. So you have Google coming in and it has the news, right? Suddenly, who gets news off of the TV? Literally, I think the average age for most news networks and news evening shows is like 72 years old. Which, sorry, 72-year-olds, but you don't count. So now it goes to zero, and Joe has no reason to keep it. He doesn't really care that much about anything else. So he's out. He's only willing to pay $15. It's $22. Next, YouTube comes along, you get a how-to video about anything, anything you want to learn or do or whatever, and the parents figured out that the kids aren't learning anything from the Discovery Channel, so they've given up on it. And now, you're cut the value of that, and now, now look at poor Jen. Jen, she's not getting what she paid for, but she loves her shows. So she will pay, but she is increasingly mad and pissed off about it because she knows she's not getting value. And so then what happens is, what, what happened with storytelling? You had, what was the constraint on storytelling? Every day you would go, oh, my show's on at 8 o'clock. i got to go watch it right now. What did Netflix do? What did they commoditize? Netflix commoditized time. So when Netflix started streaming, they did a deal with Stars, that very famous deal with Stars. And what was Stars, the, the catalog's like 11,000 movies. What was Stars' effective catalog size? It was one. It was whatever show was showing on the Stars channel, or three or four, they had a couple channels, but you get my idea. The day that Netflix started streaming the Stars catalog, what was their effective catalog size? It was 11,000. Because you could go to anyone you wanted to, it completely transformed it. And so now you have Jen coming along, and Jen's like, and you cut it all in half, because there's still some shows on TV, going to get on TV. And now Jen's gone. 
Now lots of people are starting to go because they can get what they need elsewhere. And now Netflix, you're getting that, that idea where Netflix is getting power. They're getting more and more consumers. They can start focusing not just on the U.S., but internationally, giving them more and more buying power. They can just start outbidding people. They're just paying more for stuff. Why? Because they have a bigger audience and they're paying for future growth in a way that traditional, traditional folks can't, giving them more and more power and breaking up the old bundles into more and more individual pieces. And Netflix is going on picking off shows, picking off shows, picking off shows. They don't need to buy a network. Why would they buy, buy an old archaic bundle? And so you have this end where the when and if TV's still holding on, the, the cord cutting is going down, the revenue is still high. But what's happening is not that a la carte's coming along, not that individual channels are coming along, it's that new bundles are coming along. You're getting a new bundle around information, a new bundle around education, around storytelling, around escapism. Sports is holding on. It will probably hold on for a very long time. It may end up being the cable bundle is actually just the sports bundle. But you have both, not just, not just unbundling. This is what Jim Barksdale meant. It's not just unbundling and bundling. It's happening at the same time. Unbundling and unbundling. It's the only way to make money. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. That was a very good Mary Meeker. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I've had enough coffee, so I feel confident that I can ask you a question without looking too dumb. Um, the, the, the picture you painted there is, is really scary, I think, for a lot of, of uh, content creation companies. And the, it seems like one of the responses they've, they've created in the last couple of years is almost a new conventional wisdom, is all of them say they're going to do some combination of two things. One, create a direct-to-consumer business. If they didn't have it before, if they didn't have a direct connection to their customer, they're going to make one. Uh, and two, they want to sell something directly to their consumer. They want to create a subscription if they haven't had it uh, already, or um, if they were relying on advertising, they want to push up the subscription part of their business. The New York Times is in the cover of Wired magazine this week, and they say, we're, gonna, we're, we're basically going to be like Spotify or HBO. Um, is it practical, is it reasonable for these companies that don't have direct-to-consumer businesses and that those... those abilities to create them, and is it practical for all of these companies to become subscription companies if they're not already? The strategy is sound. Like, to connect directly with the customer is the only way to escape this sort of trap. And so I think the New York Times is everyone's favorite example for good reason. They have the sort of cachet and the brand and the quality they can do it. I actually thought their recent 2020 report was really encouraging in this regard, where they're going to not just focus on subscriptions, but actually refocus their editorial around driving that, which is critical. You have to do both together. And so many newspapers in particular... Just put up the a paywall. And the, right, exactly. You, it has to be a completely integrated sort of strategy. So going to consumer is the right strategy. The big question is how many can pull it off. How, there's, most newspapers aren't the New York Times. That's the reason it's the New York Times. And in, especially in TV. And the real hang-up, and this is why, I mean, not to discourage anyone who might be here <laughs> concerned about this, the problem is you get in a situation where, to go back to Christensen, it's a disruptive sort of thing where... You have like TV networks, for example, selling to Netflix, even though Netflix is in the long run dooming them, but Netflix makes up such a significant portion of their right. today revenue, they can't afford to give it up. And you know, I think the, to escape out of that, in some respects, the Times and other newspapers have it easy because they, no, they have no choice, right? Whereas the TV networks, what's so difficult for them is they're still profitable. 
and it's way harder to make fundamental changes to your business when you're, when you're still profitable. So, so you, you touched on this a little bit, but it seems like direct-to-consumer and subscription are often bundled together, but, but increasingly I think people are going to have a choice if you're a content creator, which is do I want to try to make my own connection and, and sell directly, or do I want to sell but through a Netflix eventually or through an Amazon? Right. Um, it seems like inevitably just sort of through gravity they're going to end up Going all right. I have to sell through Amazon. Well, yeah, through there's Amazon. really there's there's like two classic strategies in business, right? There's the differentiation, like low cost leader or whatever, and you're almost going to get a bifurcation here, where you either go straight to consumer and you and you show your value that they'll pay a significant amount. And so, I mean, just to take an example of myself, like I have a subscription business, I earn a hundred to hundred twenty dollars per customer per year, right? That that's relative to what the a typical, like even Google or Facebook makes first year, that's very high, but it's a very small number. It's very niche, and everything about my strategy is to be focused on that. On the other side is like a BuzzFeed, for example, where they're just about getting content everywhere. But it, the whole process, it's pictures and images, it's easy to spread, or content creation would be the same thing, and they win by being better on costs. And so it's going to be, be an increasingly bifurcated choice. And if you're in the middle, it's going to be very hard to survive on either side. Besides the New York Times, who stands out uh, to you as an example of a company that is getting their head around what this world looks like, what they're going to need, need to do to adapt? That's a good question. Give, uh, I'll give you a minute. <laughs> well, I, I, think that, I do think the record labels, whether by on purpose or on accident, have actually come through this remarkably well. Part of it's, and a big reason is because there's only three of them. And so they can basically collude without calling it collusion and do the same sort of thing and control the whole industry. Whereas when you get to text or even to, to TV, there's so many different players, it's much harder to, to sort of break through. I mean, obviously the big, the big competitor to, well, Netflix's real competitor is Amazon. But the, from a content perspective, what HBO has done, going direct to consumer, is exactly right. And, to, and you, know, you see with HBO, HBO's had the advantage of always being a subscription business. They just had different sellers before. But that's what, and you see the, it pays on the content. That's why their content's so high quality because they have to earn that consumer relationship all the time. And you see it compared to other companies like large media companies who've been very uh, mass market focused and high ad load and just kind of pushing out a bunch of stuff, it's going to be very difficult yeah. for those companies to, to go the other so way. You mentioned this, but I, I wanted to spend a couple minutes just talking about your business and how you created it. So you, you have a subscription business. You guys should all be subscribers. 100 bucks a year? Uh, $10 a month, $100 a year. Uh, how many subscribers? Uh, a lot, more than A you. lot. And who, um, that, that is a full living for you. That is a full business. You, uh, you, yeah, I'd say it's, it's more than a business. Um, do you have other employees? I don't. I, I'm, I'm looking to get some of this like administrative stuff, but I mean that's. Um, How did you create this? Where, where, where did you, is this something you planned on doing, or did you stumble into it? I did. It, I started it with the plan of doing it, and my kind of market insight, as it were, is that there's so many people writing about technology, but they're all writing about products, and no one's really writing about the sort of uh, business side. What were you doing prior to this, before you launched this business? I was working at Microsoft, and then I was um, so. You thought, I would like to start a subscription business based around my writing. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, uh, the audacity of hope, right? Yeah. Um, I felt there was, a, I, I don't know, I felt that there was insight, and I, I felt I had insight to offer that people would find valuable. And the key that makes this possible is all this bad stuff that's happening to current media companies who are built in the old model actually made what I was trying uniquely possible. Because the internet 
enables niche in a massively powerful way where you can focus and be really good at one thing. And because you're not constrained to a geographic area, you're con you can reach the entire world. I have subscribers in like 30 countries or something and like that. And you're based in Taiwan? I'm based in Taiwan. And if you can get a niche and own it, you can do something valuable there. And the key thing though is the business models come with it. So it had to be subscription. To do an ad-based sort of business, you're just getting backed up behind Facebook and the New York Times like everyone else and there's no way to sort of break through. When did you start this? So I started Stratechery in 2013, and then I went independent, started to pay the daily update in 2014. And what, what, what's the funnel? Where are people coming to you from? How do you convert them? So the way I think about it is I, have, I write four times a week. One is free and three are for pay. And I also have a podcast. And the free article, text spreads easily. It's very viral, right? So my, reg, my weekly articles get a, a ton of readership. They get spread, spread around, all that sort of thing. And so people, I try to make it, you notice I had all those hand drawings, for example, right? That's actually a purposeful strategy on my part. One, I like doing them. But two, it's very distinctive. And so people can come to my site. They recognize it. Maybe a few weeks later, they come there again. Like, oh, I think I've been here before. This is good. Maybe they follow me on Twitter or on Facebook, whatever it might be. And then maybe eventually they're issued the podcast and they, they can, oh, this guy sounds interesting. Podcasts kind of build this sort of relationship I've found between like listeners and, and, and the speaker where they feel like they know him a little more. Yep. And then they feel a little more trust. Like, Oh, I want to, and they see like a link. Oh, he's writing about this. What does Ben say about this? And they click on it and pay all. I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to pay $10 for the guy on the internet. But they hit that a few more times, a few more times. And they find like, you know what? I'll try it. Just, it's only $10. And then they go in and they do it. And now because they've paid, I don't do a trial on a purpose because they've invested. So now they are motivated to read it every day. And now basically I have one month to get them in the habit of reading it every morning. So you have this successful business, really awesome, sole proprietor. I'm sure that people have come to you and said, I know that what you're doing is cute and $10 a month is great, but listen, I work for mega VC firm. I work for mega whatever firm. We are going to make you our public intellectual. We're going to make you our merrymaker, and we are going to double, triple, et cetera. I love merrymaking, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I bet she gets paid really well by Kleiner. And uh, Andreessen uh, hired a version of you, right? Benedict Evans, uh, who had sort of again, built himself up on Twitter, um, and they brought him in-house. That seems like a better life than having to schlep $10 a month subscriptions. <laughs> the difference, though, what people forget is people underestimate the scale of the internet. And I'm, certainly I work hard, but the amount of work I'm doing today is the exact same amount of work I was doing three years ago. The only difference is my income is 100 times higher. And it's because that $10 scales, and it scales very, very well. And I'm glad those VC guys are interested, but they're also all subscribers. I can assure you of that. <laughs> I teed you up very well. Um, normally, you've got to pay 10 bucks a month to, to ask, to ask uh, Ben a question. <laughs> We're going to offer this up to the audience right now. Hey, Rich. Hey, Peter, Ben. I love Ben. Uh, and your new Happy player. Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Are those hearts on the screen behind you? <laughs> they should be. Uh, they should be, yeah. That would have been creative. Um, so w when you look at the unbundling that you talked about, you said the last bastion is going to be sports, which I completely agree with. The question, I guess, is the entire sports business model is actually built on people who don't want them paying for it. Uh, and so when you look at, there's roughly 100 million households in the U.S. that pay for multi-channel television. That number's been going down, but it's still some form of bundles, like 100 million households. H how many households do you think stick around over the next few years in the big bundle? Because the sports business doesn't really work with 50 million homes. Like, I, I don't know what ESPN looks like with 50 million homes, unless those homes are willing to pay, you know, three or four X what they're paying now. 
it's, it's going to be very difficult for, for all of sports programming as you move forward. Not to mention sports leagues and sports owners and, you know, go down the whole kind of value chain. I, I actually slightly disagree with some of your assumptions. And I actually do think it will work with people paying significantly more. The reason why sports is so powerful holding them all together is because it's irreplaceable. And I actually suspect, my suspicion is going to be a hard road to get there, but I, I think there will be a place where people are paying significantly more or paying significantly less, as it were, where the cable bundle is basically nothing but sports. And people are paying $40 a month or whatever it might be. And all the other stuff on Netflix or whatever it might be. And you only subscribe if you want sports. But I think the number is actually probably sufficient. And you actually see in the UK where almost all the sports are on uh, it was Sky, Sky Sports. And it's like $40 to $60 a month. And it has like close to 50% penetration. So there is actually some evidence out there that there is a sizable number of people that will pay for that. And again, the reason why sports is so powerful, I think, lends itself to there being a sustainable future for it. So I'm actually more bullish than most, I think. Although, like anyone else, the road to get from here to there, I think, is going to be, you know, very challenging. Yeah, the only pushback I would have is that in the UK, it got built up as an opt-in. You were opting in for sports along the way. In the US, you know, Peter never had an option of choosing sports or no sports. He had to take sports whether he watched it or not. And so the, the undoing of that, I think, is a lot more painful than the UK where you actually always had a choice. That's true, but people have a choice right now to do the cable. And if, if basically you, it ends up, you have 100 million people paying for cable today. If it ends up that the only reason to keep paying for cable because you love sports, all you're asking is for the sports fans to continue doing what they've been doing for decades. So I actually think I would actually flip it around and say, if anything, the U.S. will end up being, an, uh, being a, a very nice opt-out system where the people who don't like sports will just gently fade into that, that night and the people who love sports don't even realize that they're... That I, I think this is the new conventional wisdom about, about Disney and ESPN, right, Was, is that is that I think in privately folks who work at Disney and ESPN and say, we realize the, the, the bundle is going to shrink and it's just a matter of at what point it stops, up, up, up. but also where it stops, right? It's, it's, yeah. So it's at 90 million, does it get to 80, 70, 60, but it doesn't go to zero. It goes to some really big number and then we sort of recalibrate. Question? I, I guess my timing is good. Hi, Rick Mandler from Disney and ABC. Hey, <laughs> that works out well. Um, so I, Ben, I think you correctly identify the paradox of Netflix where uh, Booking short-term revenue becomes a conspiracy to participate against your own demise. Um, is there a way out, though, if the traditional media companies, if the publishers expand the palette of content that they can get the MVPDs to purchase, can they effectively replace that Netflix revenue and preserve the current ecosystem? I think you guys have a better chance than anyone else. Uh, because you're, you're going to need multiple income streams to sort of, sort of make up for it. Frankly, I think it's going to be a, a big challenge in general to build that, that direct-to-consumer relationship when you've never done that before. It's hard enough for a company like HBO that has already has the business model of going to consumer but still had to build up the actual talking-to-consumer part, which is, which is very hard, to do it as a traditional media company that doesn't even have the business model and doesn't have the capability, I think will be very challenging. And I suspect that, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on Netflix. For me, my Netflix bear case is actually Amazon Prime um, more than anything else as opposed to the networks sort of getting power again. Sorry. Thanks. Question here. 
So, Will, hi, Ben. Will Richmond from Video News. Uh, perfect segue. You mentioned Amazon Prime. Amazon seems to me like the most intriguing company in this whole video ecosystem because they're now making TV shows but not really monetizing them in either advertising or subscriptions. It's all meant to fuel Amazon Prime, as we know. So curious to get your impression of how disruptive you think Amazon is going to be as they continue to pursue this strategy. Massively. I mean, they're, you're, they are by far the most frightening player in this market for the reason you said. Any company that has an orthogonal business model is very bad news for anyone else who's in there. It's like Google coming in with Android and they make money on search, they can give it away for free. Everyone else who made money in that ecosystem is, is in very big trouble. And it's the exact same sort of thing with Amazon coming in. Because they monetize differently, basically putting a, Amazon wants to put a tax on basically all of commerce in the US. And, and they will give you lots of goodies on the way to, to get there. They have tremendous latitude. They have big, deep pocketbooks, and their payoff is so, they're, they're so focused on the long-term value. I mean, Netflix can come in and they can be, Netflix gets so much value out of shows, not just today when they show them, but when they, over the long run, right? So a new subscriber today, when he says, mm, should I sign up for Netflix? I haven't been interested for five years, but there's so many shows now I want to see. Like the, the relative value of Netflix new subscribers is going up and up and up, right? Amazon's like that. So Netflix can have like a five-year time frame or a 10-year time frame payoff. Amazon's coming out with a 20-year payoff period, 25-year payoff period. Because once they get you on Prime, they have you for life. And that is by far the most terrifying, terrifying sort of competitor for, for anyone, including Netflix. So just a quick follow-up, if I could. So what is the implication of that, let's say, five years out? What, what's going to happen as a result of, again, Amazon playing well, I think the Netflix, that's why Netflix is running as fast as they can right now. They want to build up enough power and enough customers so that they can withstand Amazon in the long run. I, I, I suspect those two with kind of HBO, I think HBO is, you know, will, won't be as big but uh, is probably the best of everyone else. But I think those two are going to be the, the two giants in the, in the area. Thanks. Cool. Two quick questions. So just building on that, um, you run a, a wonderful ad-free business. Um, if we look at you know, um, Amazon you know, selling more shoes and they win a Golden Globe, you know, Apple arguably getting into services to protect 40% you know, margins on devices, uh, Netflix great subscription business. Uh, in, in your view, is it flawed to assume that ads uh, need to be uh, inherently assumed a part of the video model going forward? Or can it go like music and just be a, an ad-free world? The reality is video's been moving away from ads for 30 years or 35 years. The, the, most of video today is actually a subscription business. The subscription isn't paid directly by customers, it's paid to cable companies and then paid out in affiliate fees. But, I mean, one of my favorite examples is Mad Men, right? A show about advertising. Why was Mad Men valuable? It wasn't valuable because it earned a lot of money in advertising. It was valuable because it let AMC increase their carriage fees. They could make more money off of all the other customers because they had a very small number of very passionate fans that would have quit or would have gone elsewhere if they couldn't have gotten the show. So I actually think video is well on the road to being primarily, primarily uh, um, at least high, high prestige video, I should say, is well on the way to being subscription driven. There will always be that huge universe that, that is ad driven. But the question is, where do those ads end up? And this is the big question in tech by far. Do those ads stay on TV? Do they move to YouTube? Do they move to Facebook? Do they move, move to Snap? I mean, you get so much density when you buy on TV and you get the prestige of buying on TV where you can reach so, so many people at the same time. And so the actual costs, because at, at brand advertising, you're, you, you, it's, so, it's, it's so hard to get people that you're more focused on keeping your investment low and, and your reach high. And so TV is very compelling in that regard and where that money goes, it remains to be seen. But I think for prestige, it's, it's well on the way to subscription. It should be unsettling to a big chunk of this audience. Last question here. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming here. Mike Green from Bright Cove. 
You advise a lot of these uh, big media companies on their strategies in a lot of areas. I was curious what you thought of things like Disney owning uh, something like BAM Tech or a big component thereof and others like you know, Netflix obviously have huge tech teams. Should these media companies be trying to own tech or, or specializing in content? And no, market? there's no value in it. There's, um, it's a means to an end. I, I actually I do, like, I do like Disney's investments in, in the BAM Tech in part because I think it's a good hedge if, if ever they do need to go direct, particularly with, with ESPN in the long run. Um, and so I like, I like it for them as a hedge, but in the, I think the best outcome for, for, most, for most companies, they, that's not what they're good at. Their best option is to rent that technology from someone else and focus on what they do best. And I think, honestly think the long run, it, a lot of these companies are just gonna be content companies. And to, infrastructure is gonna actually go away. It's not gonna be added to. Great, thank you. Ben, tried to do this for a couple of years. I'm glad we made it happen. Oh, very good. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming all this way. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. You can find all the podcasts from Code Media and our other conferences at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Or just go to Recode.net for full coverage of the Code Media Conference. If you like this sort of interviews, then good news. We do interviews just like them every week on Recode's free podcasts. I host Recode Decode and co-host Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren Good of The Verge. And the producer of Code Media, Peter Kafka, has new interviews with the smartest people from the media world every Thursday on Recode Media. You can find all these shows on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or just go to recode.net slash podcasts.